I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. We have got an episode from the archive for you today. It's one of the classics, one of the classic episodes in the archive. We've got Ben McIntyre, who's one of the biggest, best-selling writers of history anywhere in the world. He came on the podcast to talk about Soviet double agent Oleg Gordievsky. He got to know Oleg. He researched and wrote his story. It became a bestseller. Absolutely extraordinary. His extraction from the Soviet Union to the West is James Bond stuff. That's what I'm saying. It's better than James Bond. Unbelievable. You're going to absolutely love it. This is a Cold War story like no other. Great to have Ben McIntyre on the pod. He's been on several times. He's a great friend to everything we're doing over here. So hope you enjoy this rerun of the podcast. Hope you're also subscribing to historyhit.tv. It's our new digital history channel. It is the place to listen to all these podcasts without any ads, which is good. And also watch loads of history documentaries, which is really fun as well. So thank you. It's growing all the time. So head over to historyhit.tv as soon as you finish this. But in the meantime, enjoy Ben McIntyre talking about Gordievsky. Ben, I'm feeling old. This is the ba- this you're coming back on the podcast. We're getting all the authors now. Second, third time around. We've been around for a while. Fantastic. It's a sign of enormous success, Dan. You should not feel bad about it at all. I'm thrilled to be back. Well, I'm thrilled to have you because this is one of the most excited and and anticipated books of the year. Um how I mean, what first of all, why do you keep getting all these this amazing access? I think without false modesty, it's just luck. Really, I mean these th- these stories. Many of them have been around for a long time, and people think they know them. But the truth is, they don't really know them because they know the sort of the original sort of news breaking story. So you can go back to some of these Cold War stories and actually tell them with real g- hope, granular detail. You can go right deep into it, and that's I hope what I've done with this one. How did you How did you get onto this one? How did this one climb to the top of your your wish list? I've always known about the Oleg Gordievsky story ever since uh, his exfiltration from Moscow in 1985. Gordievsky's been around in the story. He, he became a sort of spokesman uh, for the Cold War. But I knew that the real story had never properly been told, partly because you couldn't at the time. I mean, it, it was such an incendiary event in, in the history of the Cold War that, that really going into detail into it would have been both dangerous for for Gordievsky himself, but also would have kind of inflamed an already very tricky situation. So, so for about twenty years, the story was kept pretty quiet. Um, and and you, but you obviously there was something about it that you thought now's the time. Well, without blowing the trumpet too hard, Oleg Gordievsky was the most important intelligence 
asset for the West in the latter part of the Cold War. I mean, he really did. Most spies don't amount, in truth, to a hill of beans because, you know, we have our people in their camp, they have their people in our camp. It all, in the end, cancels out. Theoretically, it doesn't quite. There are moments in history when spies make an enormous difference, the Enigma Code. I mean, and, and lots of those deception operations during the Second World War that I've written about. But, but Oleg Gordievsky is different. I mean, his, the material he was producing for the West was going straight into the central cortex of British and Western intelligence. And it was actually fundamentally altering political policy. Not only that, it actually helped to avert uh, what came very, very close to being a full-on nuclear confrontation. No one's ever really written about it. But, but Gordievsky was in a unique position, and I, I, I'm happy to talk about it, because he was, he was so good. He was so in the know inside the KGB. He was producing material. I mean, he rose to become head of the KGB in Britain, which meant that he had access to the safe. So he was, he was not only able to tell the West what the Kremlin was doing, he was able to tell the West what the Kremlin was thinking and what the Kremlin was thinking of doing. So he was, he was two steps ahead. And, I mean, we're getting ahead of the story here, but when Gorbachev first visited the UK, before he became... Um, the, the head of the, uh, the of the communist leadership in, in the Soviet Union, Oleg Gordievsky was briefing him as a, the senior member of the KGB on what to say when he arrived. But what Gorbachev didn't know was that that briefing from Oleg Gordievsky was coming from MI6. So in fact, what was happening was Oleg Gordievsky was briefing both sides. So one of the reasons why that very very important juncture in the Cold War was so successful, why Margaret Thatcher emerged saying, I can do business with this man, was because the business was being rigged by Oleg Gordievsky. He was, he was scripting both sides, and that's never happened in history before. Why did Oleg Gordievsky turn, become a traitor to the Soviet Union? That's the central question of the whole book. Oleg Gordievsky was born into the KGB. His father was a KGB officer. His elder brother was a KGB officer. He was brought up in a special set of flats in Moscow that belonged to the KGB. He ate KGB food. He went to a KGB school. He never really considered doing anything else. And you would have thought that that would have made him a perfectly obedient sort of servant of the, of the KGB state. Actually, the reverse happened. I mean, he was trained at a KGB spy school, believe it or not, called School 101 in the, in the Moscow countryside, a completely unconscious echo of the, the George Orwell Room 101, where he was trained in surveillance, in espionage techniques, in dead drops. In, I mean, he was a highly trained spy. But even before that point, he had begun to show a certain dissidence. Because he did a special course when he was at university in Moscow, he had had access to Western newspapers. He was, and it still is, a brilliant linguist, uh, Oleg. And he, he spoke German. He read German very clearly. And he was reading West German papers. He was one of the, you know, because they were in a special situation, he was able to have access to Western media. He'd already begun to kind of question the system that he was in he happened also to be in east berlin on a training course uh, sort of before he joined the kgb but he knew he was going to join the kgb and witnessed the building of the berlin wall and was so stunned by this apparition by this physical representation of what was effectively a kind of prison wall to keep the east germans in he it was a sort of it was a it was a sort of if you want a sort of cathartic moment for him, I think he saw this clear evidence of the brutality and hypocrisy of the Soviet state. And he began to think in a different way. 
mind you, he didn't. I mean, he didn't. He didn't begin to leave the KGB for a good. I mean, to sort of distance himself for a good long time because he went through all the training courses. He was then deployed to Denmark. Uh, in the early and in, in the in the actually in the late sixties, early seventies. So he spent about three years there, um, and he was a KGB officer undercover. He was what they call a legal, which meant that he was under diplomatic cover. So technically, he was part of the the Soviet embassy. In reality, he was a KGB officer running illegals who are undercover spies, of which there were very many in Denmark. Um, and he was very good at it. A lot of it involved creating false identities and running these people undercover and using them to, to, to gather information. But while he was there, the, uh, the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia was crushed. The tanks, the Soviet tanks r- rolled in to destroy effectively a kind of liberalizing reform movement. And again, he was deeply, deeply shocked by this. Um, And in fact, he was so angry about it that he deliberately went to a telephone inside the Soviet embassy that he knew was bugged by Danish intelligence. And he rang his then wife and delivered a kind of rant about the crushing of the Prague Spring, knowing or believing that it would be picked up by Danish intelligence. Of course, it wasn't. They missed it. They managed not to pick it up. But what Oleg didn't know was that he was already on the Western intelligence radar because he had been spotted, believe it or not, going into a gay pawn shop in Copenhagen and buying two magazines. Now, Oleg was not gay, you know, but he was just interested. I mean, he, you know, he and he took them home to show his wife. I mean, it wasn't, you know, but but he was clocked. He was clocked by by Danish intelligence as a, you know, because a gay, secretly gay Russian KGB officer, they'd already clocked him as KGB. They knew he was KGB is potentially blackmailable. So for these, what, what's kind of interesting about this story is that Oleg was sending a, a, a sort of subtle signal to the West that he was available, which they didn't pick up. Um they believed that they were sending a subtle signal to him that they were ready, to, you know, to, to, because they tried a honey trap on him. They sent a gay young Danish guy, very drunk at a party, to kind of try and pick him up, which didn't work for the simple reason that Oleg wasn't gay and didn't notice. Um, but so you've got this moment when the two sides cross each other by mistake and they don't pick each other up. Oleg was then sent back to Moscow, um, not, not sent back, was redeployed back to Moscow. Still, I mean, he's a rising star in the KGB. But he's, you know, the dissident aspect of him is is growing. He spent a few years in Moscow, nothing very much happened. He was then sent back to Denmark. Now, by this point, a a friend of his, a student friend of his, a a Czech called um, Stanislaus Kaplan, had defected to the West. One of the, and he was a Czech intelligence officer. And one of the things that a defector does is he produces a long list of everybody he ever knew uh, for Western intelligence. And one of those was Oleg Gordievsky. And on this list, he, he said Oleg was kind of dissident. He, was, he wasn't a fully paid up sort of homo sovieticus, if you like. So this piece of information cross-reft with the stuff from the Danish intelligence and his name was flagged up on a file. So they prepared a, a sort of reception committee for him when he came back to Denmark and they began to actively see if they could recruit him. And, and what began then was a long and very complicated courtship in which a, a rather wonderful MI6 officer slowly began to try and peel Oleg off. And I won't give the game away, but it's a, it's a very, at times, very amusing game of cat and mouse as they try to reel Oleg in. And eventually, sure enough, he, he agrees 
to begin spying for the West. And it's a combination of reasons, really. It's, it's ideology. There's a lot of pure ideology. He was so alienated from the Soviet regime. He couldn't believe what he regarded as the sort of Philistinism of the, of the, of the Soviet world, where he wasn't even allowed to listen to the classical music that he loved. So in a way, it was a kind of cultural rebellion as well. But it contained also his rebellion and an awful lot of other things, which spying often does. Um, I think he loved the adventure. He loved the romance. He loved the secrecy. He loved the kind of double life. He was paid, not very much, but he was paid a small amount into a British bank account. And I think he also just loved the subterfuge. Every week he would go to a safe house in a, in a suburb in northern Copenhagen, often carrying microfilm that he was bringing out of the embassy at enormous personal risk to himself and downloading this stuff. And it was all being recorded and then sent back to Britain. But, of course, there's a problem if you're getting really good information, which is that it, if it's that good... You can't use it because if, if, it, if you start to use it, So, for example, Oleg was identifying Soviet assets in the West, i.e. spies that had been recruited by the West who were operating in, in, um, in Western countries. Now, if you suddenly start picking all those up, if you suddenly start arresting them, that gives away your source. So MI6 began to gather this enormous amount of material that it couldn't use yet because you've got to kind of sit on it until such a moment as you really can use it. But they also began to drip feed it uh, to the CIA. Uh, and we'll come, maybe come back to this later in the story. But this, is, this was critical because bits of it were going to America, but it was always going in disguise. MI6 would never say where it was coming from. And this actually sowed the seeds of, of Oleg's destruction. That sounds incredibly exciting. What, uh, what, so we're dealing with 1968, we're dealing with the, we're in the 1970s now, are we? Yeah, we're sort of in the mid-70s now, and Oleg is rising up the pole very quickly. But he uh, knows, sorry. Are, are, they, are they helping him to rise? Is it like a Le Carre novel, MI6 helping him to, to climb the greasy pole? Uh, not yet, but they will. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there comes a moment in this story when MI6 starts to put the burners under it. But he, they know he's going to be summoned back to Moscow because, they, they, like all diplomats, they're on a sort of cycle. And sure enough, Oleg is, is, comes, goes back from his second posting in Denmark. But before he goes, he says to MI6, I need an escape plan. I need to know that if I get caught or if I think I'm about to be caught, that I can get out. And so they began to frame up a, a, an escape plan. And it's, it's, this really is straight out of John le Carre because they really used their imaginations. Uh, a wonderful woman called Veronica Price began to frame up a way of getting him out. Now, it was incredibly difficult to get anyone out of the Soviet Union. MI6 had never exfiltrated a spy before. They'd never even tried. But they worked out there was one conceivable way of doing it, which is that if they could get under under diplomatic convention, diplomatic cars are not searched at the border. It's a convention. It's not a law. Uh, and the Soviet border guards would immediately search any car that they thought was was suspect. That said, theoretically, diplomatic cars could drive through borders without being searched. So they worked out that if they could get Oleg, uh, if the escape plan needed to be activated, if they could get Oleg to a particular spot south of the Finnish border and wait in a lay-by, they could drive diplomatic cars up to that lay-by, 
put him in the boot, wrap him in a special infrared blanket that would not pick up the infrared cameras as they went through the border, and then they might get through the border into Finland. On the other hand, even if they did get through to Finland, the Finns were quite likely to arrest them and send him back again. So it was, you know, it was a really dangerous plan. The bit I love about it is the way they were going to set this signal off. If Oleg needed to be exfiltrated, he had to be seen on the corner of a particular street in Moscow, Kutuzovsky Prospect, at 7.30 on a Tuesday, and he had to be holding a Safeway bag, one of those plastic bags with a big red S on it. If MI6, and they policed this signal site for a decade, they, they, every single Tuesday night, somebody was watching that spot, whether he was in town or not, whether he was in Moscow or not, because it, it couldn't be out of sync. They couldn't be watching it, obviously, when he was in Moscow and then not when he wasn't, because that would create a pattern that KGB would follow. And, of course, the MI6 guys were followed the whole time. Now, if they saw this signal, the way they, they showed Oleg that it had been accepted was they had to walk past him, make brief eye contact and eat a Mars bar or Kit Kat. Any English chocolate would do, but it had to be foreign chocolate and they had to wear a pair of grey trousers. So that was the signal that the, that, the, that, the, that the escape was on. It sounds utterly pantomime and totally fantastic, but as you'll discover shortly, it was very important. I love it. We're gonna, let me interrupt this now and just say you spent time with him, didn't you? I spent a lot of time with Oleg, yeah, a lot of time. I mean, I was counting them up the other day. I think I did something like 140 hours of interviews with him. Uh, and he had a most wonderful recollection. He had the most incredible recall of, of, of uh, and he still does, really, uh, of what went on in his life. And he'd never really told it before. He still lives in the safe house uh, in, in Britain, where he's been now for nearly 30 years. Uh, he's under very, very tight security, needless to say. Has the security tightened up since relations with Russia have got a little frosty or has it been the same ever since he came across? It's always been pretty tight. I mean, Oleg was a prime target from the moment that he set foot in Britain. Uh, uh, you know, um, yeah, but that said, it has got tighter since. I mean, nobody's taking any chances. He's an elderly man now. I don't think he's really a target, but they're not taking any chances. And what's his quality of life like? I mean, is he locked in his own house or does he potter about and do things? He, he potters about. He doesn't live under his own name, obviously. Um, he has great friends. He's He does get out. He's visited often by members of, 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 of the service, retired, who, who regard him as a, as a great mascot and hero. Amazing. Very cool. Somewhere in the UK, he's there. Um, I, can, I won't even ask about how whether you were wrapped up in an infrared blanket to go and visit him, but I imagine it was quite complicated. Yeah, that infrared stuff can be very hot when you're... <laughs> um, right, so he's in the 1970s. They've got the escape plan worked out. He's back in Moscow. What's going on next? Well, one of the fascinating things about his return to Moscow was that they decided not to use him when he was in Moscow. They realised that it was just going to be too dangerous to try to make contact with him. So, so it was up to Oleg. If he wanted to make contact, he could. But there was no way for MI6 to contact him, even though he was very senior within within MI6, within within the KGB. So this is a kind of fallow period, really. And they're watching the escape for the escape signal just in case he gets into trouble. Oleg, meanwhile, is learning English. 
since he's being run by MI6, he's he's worked out that actually he could probably get a posting to England. Um, and I have to probably explain the reason why he's run by MI6 is because the, the, the PET, who, which is the Danish intelligence service, and MI6 have a very had and still have a very close relationship. And it was thought that actually MI6 was just would be just better at running this. They did it jointly with 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 the Danes, but really MI6 was was kind of running the whole thing. And so um, Ole got himself posted. To, to London. I mean, it was an extraordinary coup. When the visa application landed on the case officer's desk in MI6, they couldn't believe that he'd managed to get himself appointed to London. So he arrived, he activated his, um, he had a special telephone number to ring, he activated it. With incredible joy, um, he was greeted by his case officer and then began the most fertile period of all because Oleg was now in the political section inside the KGB station inside the Soviet embassy in London. And he was producing material of incredible value. I mean, really, there's never been anybody who was able to bring the material straight out. And every week he would meet at the safe house in Bayswater. Um, they would lay on a sort of lunch of sam- smoked salmon and granite bread and a bit of beer. And Oleg would just download everything he'd got. But more than that, he brought with him from Moscow, as it were, a kind of dowry. He had been through the archives of the KGB in in Moscow, specifically looking for British assets. Who had the KGB been been recruiting? Who were they after? Who was active in London? Who were they trying to get? And the contents of those those archives he brought back from memory and downloaded them to to London, and they contained some pretty astonishing names. For example, Jack Jones, a very famous, highly um, thought of TUC leader um, actually I think he was a trade union leader uh, was described actually by Gordon Brown as being you know the one of the greatest trade union leaders of, of Britain has ever produced but he was also a KGB agent for for many many years he had been run by the KGB and was producing some quite good information by 1968 by 1970 he'd gone into kind of dormancy really um but one of the things that that Ehrlich brought back was kind of evidence of just how useful he'd been another one was bob edwards a very um left-wing labor mp who, who had done such a lot for the kgb that he'd been awarded a special soviet medal um that was another one but the most important name of all i mean the one that really rocked mi6 and mi5 when he brought it back was a file codenamed boot uh, Agent Boot, and it was a thick file. And Agent Boot was Michael Foote, the f- now former late leader of the Labour Party, who for many, many years had been in close contact with the KGB. But perhaps more important than that, he had been paid. He'd been paid quite a lot of money over the years. And this was all detailed, listed, sort of meeting by meeting in the file, in the Boot file. Now, one has to be very careful with Michael Foote because he's he's not a spy. I mean, spy is an overused word. He had nothing... He, in the time when he was in contact with the KGB, he was producing information that was really just useful to the KGB, but it wasn't, it wasn't secret. He had no access to nuclear secrets or, or things that were going to... You know, military secrets were going to change the course of the war. So he was... He was but he was considered... He was, he was termed an agent by the KGB which means that they at least thought that he consciously knew what he was doing. Um, and at the end of these meetings, money would be put into his pockets, into his overcoat, and he would he would shuffle off. Now, what he did with that money is kind of open to question. We don't really know. 
Um, he may have just used it and probably did use it to prop up Tribune, which was the, 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 the newspaper that he had edited and that was always in financial trouble and needed money. But nobody really knows what the money was, but went to. But it was there was quite a lot of it. And in the end, it amounted to the equivalent of about 30 to 35,000 pounds uh, was passed over to him. Now, he eventually was downgraded in KGB um, nomenclature to, to a confidential contact, which is kind of another grade down below agent. And and he did, in the end, sever contact with the KGB. After 1968, after the Prague Spring, uh, he really didn't have much else to do with it. But he was still on the books. And one of Ehrlich's jobs when he went to, to London, he was, he was instructed to re-establish contact with Michael Foote. Now, of course, at this point, when this piece of information lands on, on MI6 and MI5, Michael Foote is leader of the Labour Party. I mean, he's about to go into battle in a general election with, with Margaret Thatcher. It's possible, it seems unlikely to us now with, with historical hindsight, but at the time it was by no means certain that he was going to lose that election. There was a possibility that the future Prime Minister of, of Britain was going to be a former KGB agent. Now, you can imagine what effect this had within the kind of the, the, the corridors of, of, of secret power in, in Whitehall. There was a crisis here about what to do with this piece of information. Uh, and in the end, what they did was pass it over to MI5, the security service, which passed it over to uh, Robert Armstrong, the cabinet secretary, who had the decision about what to do with it. Now, of course, they couldn't really tell Margaret Thatcher. They couldn't tell the prime minister because this is such a an important piece of political information. If that had got out, it would have destroyed Michael Foote's career in an instant. You know, there was it would have you know it would have absolutely destroyed his electoral charges. So it was kind of in a way it was too again too important a piece of information to pass to the people in power. So what Armstrong did was he sat on it. He didn't tell anybody. This is the man who, of course, coined the term economical with the use of the truth during the spycatcher uh, trial. He was pretty economical with with this piece of information, and they just. You know, they, essentially, they gambled on the expectation that Foot would lose the election, which, of course, he duly did. Um, it's interesting, all of this stuff, because it, it, it's it, it's evidence in a funny way that the reputation of the case. I mean, Foot was an important person, but he was kind of the most important, you know, figure to emerge from this this thing. What there, what in a way, what Oleg brought was evidence of what was not going on, i.e. the British establishment was not riddled with spies. I mean, everyone was terrified there was going to be another Philby McLean Burgess moment, that there were going to be lots of people that the KGB had picked up. What Oleg did was to produce evidence that, in fact, the KGB was quite weak in Britain. And in fact, it was quite weak globally. It didn't have that much stuff. But one of the other things that Oleg did was he bought and then described a, a, an operation that the KGB had launched called RIAN, Operation RIAN, which was the belief inside uh, the Kremlin that the West was planning a first strike. Now, Operation RIAN was an order that went out to all KGB stations to find evidence of, a, of, an impending, of an impending first nuclear strike by the West. The Kremlin genuinely, genuinely believed that actually, and it was a combination of Reaganite rhetoric and, and various other factors, Andropov believed genuinely that the West was ready to do this. Now, if you ask spies to look for something, 
On the whole, that's what they'll find you. I mean, it's the first rule of intelligence that you, you know, you don't set the parameters before you set the task. Well, he, you know, that was classically broken. And so, of course, the KGB began to produce this information, began to produce. I mean, it was some of it was frankly bizarre. I mean, stuff like the fact that the lights might be left on in the in the defense ministry at night, the fact that, you know, they were even asked, I mean, one of the most bizarre things, they were told to keep an eye on bishops and bankers in case they were moving out of London, you know, in case there was going to be a retaliatory strike. But, I mean, joking apart, actually what this did, Operation Rian, was it convinced the West that actually this wasn't just, this wasn't, I mean, it was paranoia on the part of the Kremlin, but it wasn't unreal. There was a genuine fear. And it was one of the things that actually began to ratchet down the Cold War. When this stuff landed on Reagan's desk... He began to think, and we have strong evidence for this, that actually they were going too far. They were pushing. They were pushing somebody who, because of course, if if the Soviet Union did believe there was going to be an impending first strike, genuinely thought the button was about to be pushed, they would push the button first. And so it did lead to a kind of, as it were, to a kind of thawing of the Cold War. It was quite interesting, and. and Gordievsky was was directly responsible for that, and in particular, there was a, there was a, there was an an exercise called Able Archer, which was a sort of test, um, you know, deployment of Western troops, and and it became very clear that actually in in Moscow, this was interpreted not as a plan, not as a not as a not as a kind of rehearsal, but as the real thing, um, and in the end, it was a sort of Mexican standoff that pulled apart. But again, Gordievsky's material was so good was so accurate that that actually reagan began to kind of pull back but as i said at the beginning there's a problem here because all the material that was being sent and increasingly uh, this material was being sent in larger and larger volume to the americans but it was disguised mi6 would never tell the cia where it was coming from um, it was always, you know, hidden behind lots and lots of smoke and mirrors because it's a it's an axiom of intelligence that if you have a great source, you don't even share it with your best friends. Now, the CIA doesn't really like that. It likes to know where everything is coming from because it's a kind of global intelligence agency. And so the CIA set up secretly a special task force effectively to spy on the British to try to find out who the British were running. That is absolutely brilliant. I love that's the special relationship for you right there. Absolutely. They worked it out. It took them about a year and they spent a lot of money on it. They spent a lot of resources on it. They triangulated away and they worked out where the information, and this is how you do it. You work out where the information is coming from. Who was there at that point? Which which potential KGB officer? They kind of worked out pretty early on that it must be KGB. What they didn't know, however, the CIA was that their head of counterintelligence was about to go over to the KGB as a spy. This was a man called Aldrich Ames, who is now well known, but at the beginning of 1985, he was pretty drunk, he was very disillusioned, he was extremely greedy, he had a very expensive new fiancé, he wanted money, and he was just about to start selling secrets to the Soviet Union. So what you've got is a perfect espionage circle here. You've got the KGB spying on the CIA, spying on MI6, spying on the KGB. This is Dadso's History Hit. We're talking to Ben McIntyre about Soviet spies. More after this. How? 
did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Come on then, what happens? Well, at this point, Oleg is rising up the pole in the KGB in London. And you asked earlier whether the Brits helped him. Well, of course they did. They began to declare persona non grata, his immediate bosses. So they first of all threw out a man called Titov, who was his boss in, in, in the political section. So Oleg moved up into that section. They then brilliantly worked out a way of getting rid of a wonderful character straight out of central casting called Arkady Gook, who was the head of the KGB in London. It's a big, bloated, brutal kind of drunken slob, really. But he was quite clever, too. He was very cunning. But they managed to get him ousted, too. So Oleg then moved up and he, and he became appointed the head of the KGB in London. So effectively, by removing the people around him and above him, MI6 and MI5 managed to clear the path for him to go up. It sounds very simple. It sounds rather obvious, too. I mean, if you were clever, and we'll come to this in the Soviet Union, and you noticed that Oleg's bosses were disappearing one by one, you might begin to put two and two together. He was appointed head of the KGB. He had, it has to be said here, he had not told anybody. He did, he, he, he'd married for a second time early. He didn't tell his wife what he was doing. He had two young children. He was, he was operating alone. And it's a very lonely business, this. But he was, at the, in, in May 1985, a telegram arrived at the KGB headquarters summoning Oleg back to Moscow to be anointed. He'd, he'd, he'd been appointed, but he hadn't been actually formally given the job of, of head of the KGB. Resident is the, is the title. And the, the telegram said, come back to Moscow. Uh, we, need to, we need to kind of, there has to be a formal laying on of hands, as it were. And I only looked at this and thought, uh-uh. And there was, a, there was a high level discussion in MI6. I mean, everybody gathered his, his, MI6, his case officers, you know, to discuss whether or, not it, whether or not this was the moment to pull the plug on the case. Should they pull Gordievsky out? give him a new identity, allow him to... Because he'd done noble work by this point. 
And it was an intense discussion. And in the end, it was really left to Gordievsky himself to make the choice. Um, it's one of those interesting moments where two people can hear the same words and hear something completely different. MI6, I think, thought they were genuinely saying to Oleg, you've done enough, you can quit, you can stay. If you want to pull out, we'll understand. Of course, we'll be sad, we'll be regretful because we're about to hit the jackpot, but we will understand that. That's one side of what they said, but Oleg thought he heard something else. He thought he heard himself being ordered, really, to go back to Moscow being told that it was his duty. And somewhere the truth lies in between those two things. But it's a pivotal moment. And with incredible bravery. And, and it, one can't overestimate this. Gordievsky said, I will go back. I will go back. So he flew back to Moscow. By the time he landed, he th began to think something was awry. I mean, he thought he could see more surveillance in, in, in the airport in Moscow than usual. The person he was supposed to send to pick him up had not arrived. He went to his apartment and he opened the top lock and he opened the second lock, but he couldn't open the door. And he couldn't work out why, the, why he couldn't open the door. Well, the third lock had been locked, but he didn't have the key to the third lock. He'd never used the third lock, which meant the KGB had been inside his, his room, inside his house. Because, of course, they're the only people who could have got in and out. So it was a big mistake on their part to lock the third lock, and it gave it away. So from that moment, he knew he was a marked man. He knew he was in real trouble. And sure enough, he was under intense surveillance because the KGB had been told. They had been told they'd been tipped off. Now, it's long been a source of controversy about how the KGB learned this. It's pretty clear to me that Aldrich Ames was the source. There's... Aldrich James himself has tried to muddy the waters since and, and claimed that he didn't do it then, that he only produced the name later on. Aldrich James, by the way, is, is serving a very long sentence in, in Arizona. He ain't going to be coming out soon. Um, but it's in his interest to muddy the water. It, 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 it's, almost, it's almost certain that Ames is the source. He certainly did produce Gordievsky's name later on. He may simply have said we know there's somebody spying within the KGB. When he met up with his KGB contacts in, in Washington, he may just have said to them, look, we know there's someone. He may even have said, we know there's someone in the KGB station in London. But anyway, he said enough to set the KGB on Oleg's tail. What then started was this extraordinary game of cat and mouse in Moscow, where Oleg is kept and knew he was being un kept under surveillance, watched really closely because the KGB wanted to catch him with MI6. They wanted, to, they wanted a big spy scandal. They wanted to be able to expose everybody. And so they watched him. And they did more than watch him. They summoned him at one point to a meeting in a sort of special sort of dacha where he was drugged, where he was interrogated. Uh, he was given a sort of truth serum. Uh, that was supposed to induce amnesia um, afterwards, so he was not able to remember anyway. Amazingly, he managed to get through that without giving himself away. Um, but it's an extraordinary moment, but he knew he was in deep, deep trouble. And he knew he was in even deeper trouble when his wife and daughters were flown back from, from London, because effectively that was a message, you're all hostages now. And so... It's a funny moment when, when, funny, it's a terrible, terrifying moment when Oleg knows he's under surveillance and the KGB knows he knows and they're, they're playing this game to try and trap him. And at this point, he realised he had to get out. He had, he had to escape. 
And this was a terrible moment for him, really, because he had to decide whether or not to take his wife and children. And unbeknown, I mean, obviously his wife, Leila, had no idea that he was a double agent. She knew he was a KGB officer. She had no idea that he was spying for MI6. And MI6 had made provision for all of them to get out. They were going to take two cars up to the border. The little girls would be injected with a soporific drug. They'd be wrapped in, in I mean, it was an incredibly dangerous project. Uh, they were going to be wrapped in special infrared blankets. There would be a child and an adult in the boot of two cars, and then they would try and drive them through the border. So Oleg spent a terrible, long, agonizing night of the soul trying to work out whether or not he could take his family. And he decided in the end he could not. And it's the sort of emotional, it's really the, the, I mean, it's the most difficult and painful moment of Oleg's life, I think that. And one, in truth, that I think he himself would admit that he's never really recovered from. But on July the 15th, 1985, a man was standing with a Safeways bag on the corner of Kutuzovsky Prospect in front of the bread shop. And he was spotted by MI6 and they walked past him holding a Mars bar, which they ate. And so the whole thing was rolling. God, I'm breathless here. Um, and and uh, so how, how, how long did he have to wait? Well, his part of the, his job was now to throw off surveillance. I mean, he was being followed the whole time. He'd managed to throw them off long enough to get to the signal site. They picked him up again the next next hour when he went to go and see his father, his father-in-law. So his job was to take a train, throw off surveillance, take a train up to uh, the the Finland state from the Finland station, and get to this layby about thirty miles south of uh, the Finnish border. At the same time, two MI6 officers had to perform what was in fact in effect a kind of amateur dramatics performance for the listening KGB bugs because all of their apartments were bugged and they knew it. So they had to come up with a story for the KGB that would look plausible. So the wife of one of the MI6 officers pretended to have a bad back and performed the role of sort of invalid for the listening bugs of the KGB inside their apartment because that was their excuse for having to get to Helsinki. So she said, oh, my back is really, really sore and I think I need to go to Helsinki. And her friend, the next door neighbour, said, oh, well, I think I'd better come with you. So this was an elaborate way of convincing the KGB that they genuinely had to go and see a doctor in Helsinki and the husbands would have to come along too. It was all cover. Somewhere in the KGB archives is an enormous transcript of what was essentially a kind of amateur dramatics performance by MI6. And it's actually, we discovered afterwards, it's one of the things that most infuriated the KGB was that the the wives of these officers had sort of been complicit in this plan. So, and the timing was down to seconds. I mean, down to seconds. They had to, so so what you've got is you've got two prongs of this going on at the same time. Oleg is trying to make his way up to the the lay-by. At the same time, the the two MI6 cars, which are being followed by KGB cars, have to somehow throw off the KGB cars for long enough to scoot into this lay-by, pull Oleg out of the, out of the underbrush, wrap him up, give him a, uh, some tranquilizers, and then keep going fast enough that the KGB won't necessarily realise what's happened. Um, and I won't give it away by saying what happens, but it is down to seconds. Uh 
Oleg is living it and he won't give anything away, so he's living in Britain now. You've already said that. Um, of, of all the people involved in this drama, I mean, how many were you able to talk to? Well, that was one of the incredible breaks here, was that through Oleg, I, I, I managed to get access to every single case officer that had worked on the on the case. So I was able to kind of really drill down into the kind of, not just the hour by hour, but the minute by minute moments of the story, which is has been an incredible privilege. And I've been so lucky and so fortunate that they've been so generous with their with their memories. Of course, their identities are all disguised in the book. I, I'm, I'm not able to reveal who they are. But uh, that was really the sort of gold dust of this story, was being able to talk to everybody. And if you have that many memories, if you have that many recollections, you you can end up with a with a really, I hope, with a really rich patina of what actually happened. And then when you combine it with Oleg's own prodigious memory, you, you have a pretty amazing storehouse of material. What happened to his wife and daughters? That's one of the tragic aspects of this story, is that Leila Gordievsky, who was staggered by this, I mean, she, she was on holiday with her family in the Caspian. She had no idea. She knew Oleg had been recalled from Moscow, but she also was a, she herself was KGB in the sense that both of her parents had been KGB officers. She too had been brought up in the KGB. So she was, you know, you know she was part of the system. Um, and she knew he was a KGB officer. She had no idea that he'd been spying for Britain for, for as long as he had, or at all. And so it came as an appalling shock to her. And she was multiply interrogated when, when Oleg escaped. She was effectively kept under house arrest for six years, um, never really knowing what had happened. I mean, she refused for the longest time to believe that he could actually have, have been a, you know, could actually have betrayed the KGB. I mean, one of the reasons that Oleg didn't take her, he says, is that he couldn't quite trust her. He believed he couldn't quite, he didn't quite know whether she might not tell the KGB. She says she wouldn't have done, that she would have given him time to escape. She doesn't necessarily say she would have gone with him, but that's an impossible question to ask. I mean, I've, I've, I've met and interviewed Leila. Um, it's an impossible question to ask someone because, as she rightly says, how can you answer that until you're in that situation? But eventually the truth did dawn. I mean, she realised that he had done this. And, and a long campaign, meanwhile, was being launched by Britain to try and persuade the Soviet Union to allow this family to be reunited. And, and to Thatcher's immense credit, every time she met Gorbachev, she would bring up this subject. She would say, what about the family? They need to be reunited. But the KGB was furious. I mean, absolutely livid. Um, about what had happened and effectively kept Leila. I mean, she was eventually allowed out, but it took the, really it took the crumbling of the Soviet Union for that to happen. And they were reunited in, in, in London. The girls were, were flown back at the same time. But the marriage was effectively destroyed. I mean, the level of, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to put oneself into this situation, you know, and... Betrayal is is sometimes the story of marriage, but this is betrayal on a on a on a complicated and and altogether different level. And the marriage didn't survive. Um, and and that I think, you know, is one of the one of the tragedies of this story. I mean, spying outside of fiction, spying doesn't produce happy endings usually. It's a complicated, messy, complex, confusing, contradictory business. And so. I mean, Oleg is a very interesting and complicated man himself. I think he would admit as much. He is, you know, he, he can be very difficult sometimes. He can be 
complicated. He's had a very complicated life. He's a. I think he's one of the. He's one of the loneliest people I think I've ever met. But he's also one of the bravest. And in fact, I think he is the bravest person I've ever met. For a decade, he knew that a tap on the shoulder, one slip, and he was going to be arrested, tortured, and then executed. I mean, the stakes were incredibly high. So there is a kind of raw, extraordinary courage to to Oleg and his story that is, it is, in my experience, unique in espionage. Does he regret anything, or is he proud of what he did? He's an intensely proud man. I think he, I know he feels that what he did actually changed the course of history. And and he's right. I mean, it is it is an astonishing achievement. It came at a very, very heavy price. And he knows that. But I think he also feels that it was probably in the end a price worth paying. Well... This is incredibly exciting. The book is called? It's called The Spy and the Traitor. Amazing. Can't wait. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and telling us all about it. A huge pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Okay, folks, this week I'm delighted to be partnering with a new film called The Courier for this section of the podcast. You know me, I love historical drama, and this is one of the best. One of the most important periods in our history. It's pretty important because the period in which humanity managed to almost destroy itself in a thermonuclear war. So it's exciting. This film is a true life spy thriller. The story of an unassuming British businessman, Greville Wynne. I mean, coolest British name of all time. Played by the exceptional Benedict Cumberbatch. Obviously, always the mark of quality for any movie. He's recruited into one of the greatest international conflicts in history. And it releases only in cinemas from the 13th of August. So it's actually a crazy story, this. At the behest of the UK's MI6 and a CIA operative who, for the purposes of this movie, is played by the marvellous Mrs. Maisel's Rachel Brosnan, he forms a covert, dangerous partnership with the Soviet officer Oleg Pengovsky. This is true. He did actually in real life. Played by Merab Nidze. In an effort to provide crucial intelligence needed to prevent a nuclear confrontation and defuse the Cuban Missile Crisis. What I like about the film is that the actors, the filmmakers, have very cleverly captured the look and feel of the Cold War. And you do get a sense of the very real threat of a nuclear war. And that's super important because if you talk to people who were alive at the time, who were involved in the negotiations, the discussion at the time, the crisis at the time, they were very aware that this could easily lead to nuclear war. If, like me, you're fascinated by this era of history, you must see this incredible untold based on a true story of when the unsuspecting salesman who becomes a spy during the Cold War. I think it's important to remember that the world in the mid-20th century was divided. There were two giant alternatives how to organise our society, capitalist and socialist or communist models. And that wasn't just how to organise government, how you appoint elected governments. It was down to your everyday behaviour, what you earned, what you could eat, what you could buy, what you should think. It's, it's difficult to understand this now, but there were these two competing ideologies. And at the time, in the mid-century, it was not at all clear which one was going to win. In a way, there's nothing new about superpower rivalries, although this was a truly global one for the global era. And, of course, new technology had given this rivalry a very different aspect, a terrible aspect, you know, compared to, you know, Athens and Sparta or Britain and Russia in the 19th century or Britain and France in the 18th century. This is a superpower rivalry in which either side had the ability to unleash weapons of mass destruction unlike any in history. 
Atomic weapons, like the one used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and hydrogen weapons, are an entirely different league to any weapon that's ever been wielded by humans before. What was at stake, really, was, if not the end of life on the planet, certainly the end of life as we know it on planet Earth. There was no way of stopping nuclear missiles. In previous wars, previous rivalries, you you can plan to intercept a French invasion fleet in the Channel, and indeed that's what happened on several occasions. You'll know, listening to me bang on about it on this podcast. There's no way to be sure you can shoot down every single nuclear arms bomber in the enemy's fleet. So the only way of protecting yourself is to build a big nuclear arsenal yourself and threaten the other side with annihilation. You will annihilate us, but we will destroy you. Hence the expression mutually assured destruction. Mad the uh, useful acronym MAD for short. The Soviets, by October 1962, had a few dozen intercontinental ballistic missiles, so missiles it was impossible to shoot down. They were primitive, they might not have worked very well, but clearly capable of inflicting enormous casualties on the US and our allies in Western Europe. The USA, on the other hand, had 170 of these missiles. It's very, very quickly building more. They had eight ballistic submarines, a separate arsenal, Those are each capable of launching 16 nuclear missiles. They can go up to nearly 3,000 miles, so you can park a submarine in the North Sea and strike Moscow, for example, very easily with those. And there was this huge rivalry in the 1960s as to who could build more weapons. JFK, we think of JFK as a kind of great peacemaker and a progressive president now, but we forget he actually won the election in 1960 in large part because he terrified the Americans to believing there was a missile gap. The Soviet Union was actually ahead of the US and the Republicans were not taking national security seriously enough, if you can believe that. So this was a hot topic. It was hugely important. The Soviet Union also had something like 700 medium-range ballistic missiles, so places like Britain would have been easy prey for the Soviet Union in the event of nuclear war. This little island of ours would have been completely destroyed. All in all, nuclear warheads, including ones carried by you know, submarines, the ballistic missiles, but also mainly carried by aircraft at that point, there were 27,000 US nuclear warheads at that point and about yeah, three or 4,000 Soviet ones. So plenty to cause unimaginable damage. This technology on both sides created paranoia. There were some generals, military thinkers, who thought the only way to truly protect yourself was to launch such a massive preemptive strike on the enemy that you try and knock out their entire nuclear arsenal before they have a chance to deploy it. The problem is there was no 100% guarantee. And once you'd launched your strike, even if a few nuclear missiles got away, slipped out from under your attack, it could cause catastrophic damage, for example, to the eastern seaboard of the USA. But it was all part of this idea of deterrence. And one way in which the Soviets believed that they could fast-track deterrence in the early 1960s was to take advantage of Cuba, to put some of these medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba. A little island just 100 miles or so off the coast of Florida. The USA, after all, had ballistic missiles in Turkey, so it didn't seem like a huge leap that the Soviet Union should base them in Cuba. Both sides in this period got vast intelligence agencies, they had huge resources to try and work out what the other was thinking, what was going on. And this is where wind comes in. November 1960, the British Security Services recruited a businessman who frequently visited Eastern Europe. He was called Greville Wynne. And they wanted him to act as a spy, really a courier, to be honest, to deliver messages and receive answers from a Soviet agent Oleg Penkovsky. He'd made contact with the West and he was keen to send messages about the size and scale of the Soviet nuclear arsenal. He did send the West the first information about Soviet plans in Cuba, which in turn allowed the Americans to send observation aircraft over missile sites before those sites were fully operational. So he gave the Americans decisive advantage in the upcoming 
Cuban Missile Crisis. He was then arrested. He was questioned. We can only imagine what that involved. And he was executed. And in real life, President Kennedy may have benefited enormously from his intelligence in the crisis that shortly followed over Cuba. Cumberbatch is obviously brilliant in this film. He transports us back to the period. They also go to a lot of effort, the filmmakers, to sort of include actual quotes and historical records from the time. It's a haunting moment in the film where you hear JFK's words, weapons of war must be abolished before they abolish us. The Cold War tension in the film is so palpable, you've got to see it in the cinema. No point seeing it at home. You're not going to get the same atmosphere. Go and see it in the cinema. The Courier is releasing only in cinemas from August the 13th. Book tickets now at www.thecouriermovie.co.uk. That's www.thecouriermovie.co.uk. Thank you for listening to this segment today, brought to you in partnership with The Courier. I feel we have the history of our children. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks. You made it in the middle of episode. Congratulations. Well done, you. I hope you're not fast asleep. If you did fancy supporting everything we do here at History Hit, we'd love it if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Thank you very much indeed. That really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please don't ever do that. It can seem like a small thing, but actually it's kind of a big deal for us. So I really appreciate it. See you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.